Matthew 26, beginning in verse 17. We're going to pick up right where we left off last Sunday. We're going to read this part of the story to you, and then we're going to go back and kind of do a Wednesday night thing. We're just going to walk through it verse by verse and take a look at it and see if we can understand more of what was going on here. So Matthew 26, beginning in verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says my time is near, and I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. As they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. And he answered, He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. And Jesus said to him, You've said it yourself. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, He broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is My body. And when He had taken a cup and given thanks, He gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, drink from it, all of you. For this is My blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in My Father's kingdom. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. It remains one of the most celebrated and meaningful feasts in all of history. The Feast of the Passover. Jewish people have celebrated it now for some 3,500 years. That annual remembrance of the amazing night when the Lord passed over His people, Israel. Turn back to Exodus chapter 12 in your Bibles. Keep your finger in Matthew 26. And go to Exodus 12. And we might understand the, the roots, the foundation, the beginning of this story. Exodus chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Now this is actually the seventh month on the calendar year. Seventh month of the Jewish calendar, but it's considered... Religiously, spiritually, it's now considered the first month because of what happened in this month. Verse 3, speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they are to each one to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's households. A lamb for each household. Now if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. According to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. By the way, a quick note on the Hebrew word twilight there. The word Arev in the Hebrew, it literally means between the two evenings. Remember that, it means between the two evenings. 
Verse 7. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs, along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt." There are multiple things you can draw out of the Passover, out of the picture that that the Lord paints in this feast. I'll give you three of them here. Prevention, preservation, and preparation. The Passover is first about prevention in that, in the first Passover, or Pesach in the Hebrew, in that first Passover, the Lord prevented the death of the firstborn of Israel by the placing of the blood on the lintel and the doorposts. The Lord then would see that blood placed there and would pass over those homes. It would be all those of Israel in the land of Goshen. Any that were outside of the land of Goshen, any who painted the blood, would be protected, prevented from death, the death of the firstborn. But the Passover also stands as a sign of protection for the Jewish people. Even across all the centuries since the Lord first prescribed it, it is a sign of protection. Isaiah 31 verse 5 says, Like flying birds, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver. He will pass over and rescue it. Whereas the entire world deserves judgment, and Israel truly has experienced judgment in the past centuries, the Lord yet has passed over, pronouncing a judgment of complete death to Israel, even for all of their rejection, rebellion, and sin. He has passed over that decision He has protected His people. But the Passover meal was also a feast of preparation. Now granted, Passover itself usually takes a large amount of preparation, especially in the more orthodox Jewish homes. The preparation begins weeks before as you come into the springtime, preparing for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which begins with that first day is Passover, and then for seven days the Jewish people would eat only unleavened bread, that feast beginning. They'd have to clear all the, un- all the leaven out of the house completely. Pull out the dishes that are saved specifically only for that time. So that no leaven could be involved. Leaven, you know, you Bible students know, it's a picture of sin in the Bible. A lot of preparation goes into this feast of Passover. We talked about it Wednesday night. We were able to experience a Passover Seder, a mini, a condensed version with our friend Rich Robinson from Jews for Jesus. And it was, it was amazing. If you were able to be here, you know it was a wonderful evening. If you weren't able to be here, and we're still here a year from now, March 31st of next year, we're going to have a full Passover meal. We're going to have Rich Robinson back and do the whole thing uh, from start to finish, spend the evening together doing that. I'm excited about, about that opportunity. But Passover was preparation, not just for that day, it was preparation for the greatest passing over of all time and all eternity. The Passover itself points ahead, looks ahead. Not to, it's not a feast just of looking back. 
Several years back when we went through the Feast of Israel in the book of Leviticus, we talked about each feast has, has a, a looking forward and a looking back to it. And in this feast, the Jewish people today will look back to that time when they were saved from Egypt. But we know that the Passover is a looking ahead to the ultimate Passover lamb, to Jesus and what He would experience. Four questions are asked in the Passover. Families will have what's called a, a Passover Haggadah. And the Haggadah is a book that you open up and it's kind of a liturgy for the Passover. And four questions are asked each, each year as a reminder as they walk through this, this amazing feast. Usually asked by the youngest person at the table. And question number one is this. Why is this night different from all other nights? Why is this night different from all other nights? It would have been asked there at what we call the Last Supper or the last Passover, where Jesus and His apostles met together in that upper room, someone at the table would have asked the question, why is this night different from all others? Now, as far as we know, there were no children present, so it probably would have been the youngest of the apostles. I don't know if the the apostles kind of grinned at each other a little bit as, you know, the youngster, whoever it was, got to ask the question. But it was especially poignant for this night. For this night we're talking about Why is this night different from all other nights? This night was different from all other Passovers in that it would be truly the last one. Well, Rick, they continue to celebrate it every year. Yes, but this is the last one in the life of the Jews, the last one that would be considered Passover. Why is this night different than all other nights? Because Jesus took the ancient feast of Passover and He gave it its full consummation. This is where we begin to see the absolute, I would use the word brilliance, but it's beyond that. The unfathomable mind of God, as He plans out and He looks ahead, and He processes and thinks through all these things before even the foundation of the world, that He had this prepared, that Passover would be a picture, and that Jesus would come, and on this night, He would show the consummation of it. He would bring it into its fullest and most complete meaning. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Verse 6, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? A little bit of sin makes sin bad everywhere. (laughs) He says, clean out the old leaven so you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Jesus gives Passover, gave Passover, its truest and deepest significance. A significance he highlights here on this last Passover. On this Thursday night of the last week of Jesus, as He and the apostles sat together in that room, He showed us what it meant. And we often call it the Last Supper, but for Jesus, it was a last Passover. It was a night of final directions. It was a night of gut-wrenching prayer. It was a night of brutal betrayal. Let's walk through a little bit now. Verse 17 again. On the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is near. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. I've always kind of wondered about this, that Jesus just kind of took a house. How did they know? It had to be someone who knew the rabbi, the teacher. Tradition tells us it was John Mark's house. And tradition continues to say that it's a certain room there in Jerusalem. And if you go on the Jerusalem tour, you you see the room. You walk in there and it's not really what you would expect. It's kind of a hard, cold, stone room. 
It's not what you think of when you think of the Passover. But the reality is it was considered an honorable thing among Jews living in in Jerusalem to maintain a separate room in their house for those coming from all over Israel to use. That when the time of the Feast of the Passover came, people could come in and you could say, I have an open room in my house. You might put a sign on your door. You might just let the word spread. And as people came in, they would have a place that they could gather, a shelter, where they could celebrate Passover there in Jerusalem. Hospitality. Hospitality has always been a high value to the Lord. Hospitality is, I believe, one of the things that we overlook most when it comes to deep spiritual living. To living in the way that God wants us to live. Hospitality, it seems like such a simple thing. And and you guys, you know, we tend to think of it as something for our wives to take care of, you know. I'll show up when you call dinner, but but the hospitality thing, that's, that's not my deal. And yet to the Father, hospitality is huge. Paul said in Romans 12.10, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Hospitality. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 2 gives us an interesting take on this. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. I mean truly, this has happened. And we know that happened with Abraham when the three men came to visit him. Although it was more likely not just three angels, but the Lord was present there. And throughout history, according to this verse, according to the Hebrew writer, there have been times where angels have visited And people have opened their homes and shared dinner and didn't even know that it was angels there visiting. Hospitality has always been a high value of the Lord. Rick, why are you sitting on this one? Because, don't forget that even now, as we study this morning, John 14 tells us that Jesus is preparing a place for you. That Jesus is currently practicing hospitality to invite you into the home, into the place He has prepared Well, verse 20 says, When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. Two things to note in this verse, evening and reclining. They're important to note because evening, we know that the Jewish day, it doesn't begin with morning like our day does. It begins at sunset and runs through to the next sunset. That's a complete calendar day for the Jewish people. You'll notice even back in the creation, in the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, it says there's evening and morning one day because the Jews counted from evening to evening. And here, when they're meeting, and it is evening, when evening came, you need to understand that. Because as we saw back in Exodus 12, verse 6, the word there literally means, it says twilight, it's a red, it literally means between the two sunsets. So? So it explains to us how Jesus could both share the Passover and be the Passover in the same 24-hour period. How it counts. How Passover didn't happen just the evening the night before and then Jesus was crucified because some would say, well, if He's the Passover lamb, why wasn't He sacrificed on Passover? He was. Between the two evenings. He shared Passover and He was sacrificed as Passover. By 9 o'clock, the next morning after this story, Jesus would be hanging on the cross. Reclining. It says that they were reclining. No doubt you've seen the picture that was painted on that night where Jesus sat in the middle of the table and the apostles all lined up on either side of Him at this nice big table that's that's laid out before them as Leonardo da Vinci painted the portrait. Move in, Peter, a little bit. Thomas, can you please smile? Let's get this painted together. You've seen that. 
It's nothing like that. Not even close. That's a contemporary artist's rendering. And you know what's funny about it? Just a side note. You've read the Da Vinci Code or heard about the story possibly and how it kind of raised a ruckus. And one of the points in the Da Vinci Code is if you look at it, you can see the person sitting there just to the right of Jesus. That It's not John. It's got to be Mary Magdalene. And if Mary Magdalene was there, maybe Jesus and Mary had this thing going on. And they use that as proof. Leonardo wasn't even there that night. The painting is not a legitimate painting. It's some guy's idea. Even if Leonardo himself had thought that Mary was there. How ridiculous that people would say, well, see, she was there because Leonardo painted her that way. It's ridiculous. In reality, they reclined at what's called a triclinium. A triclinium is a a, a triangular, three-sided table, a low table, maybe about the height of a bench. There'd be pillows around each side. Four to five people could sit reclining on either side of the three-sided triclinium. We were watching last night an old I Love Lucy episode. And Ricky and his friends, and then Lucy comes in, are, are playing poker together. And it's funny because they're seated around the table, all around one side, crushed on one side, because in those days the television camera could only get you know, the one angle. And so people get this idea of the Passover as, as the apostles spread out like this. No, they weren't. They were all around in a circle, eye to eye, able to see each other, very close, at this low table, reclining together. But there's another reason I tell you that they were reclining. John 13.23 tells us that John was the one who reclined at Jesus' right-hand side. We know this. John was the, the apostle that leaned up against Jesus' breast. Peter said, John, ask him if, 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 who's going to betray him. And John leans in and goes, who is it? Who is it, Jesus? And it's not just that John and Jesus were buddies, although they were. But it was the placement around the table, and they would recline that way. And so John's reclining would be right there into Jesus. But the seat of honor at the Passover... Especially when you had a rabbi like Jesus, when you had a principal person, a person of great importance at the Passover, the seat of honor was always on the left-hand side of the one leading the Passover. Guess who sat there? It was most likely Judas. How do we know that? Verse 21. As they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord! And the irony of that is that they all did. They all fled. Every apostle ran away. There was betrayal on that night beyond that of Judas. Surely not I, Lord! And he answered, He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is one is the one who will betray me. I've always wondered on that one, why didn't they just know? Why wasn't it obvious? All we got to do is wait and see who's going to dip. And they're like, I'm not dipping, you're going to dip? I'm like, you know... How didn't they know who it was? Jesus would have shared the dipping bowl, and and if you were here Wednesday night, you know what was in that dipping bowl. It was salt water. And He would have shared that dipping bowl with whoever was seated directly next to Him. We know on the right it was John, and we know John wasn't the betrayer. The next person who could have dipped with Jesus was the betrayer. Judas was on the left. And as Judas sat there, reclining in the place of honor, dipping in the bowl, and the bowl again, it was not filled with onion dip or salsa. It was filled with salt water into which the Seder company would dip a bitter root to remind them of the tears and the bitterness of slavery. You dip that bitter root and then eat it, and and the taste is, it's, it's, it's horribly bitter. But on this night, the dipping process held a bitterness of a completely different kind. The Son of Man, Jesus said, is to go 
Just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, and Matthew is very clear, not who would betray him, but who was betraying him. And as we've already seen, Judas has already had the conversation with the chief priests. As a matter of fact, just by way of timing, Remember last week we talked about the woman at the house of Bethany who anointed Jesus? We talked about the fact that it was just at that night when Judas had had enough and he left and he went and he betrayed Jesus to the chief priest. Matthew places the story right here in chapter 26. But the thing Matthew doesn't do is make it absolutely clear that it had to happen right here. Because when John tells the story, he says it actually happened on the night before the triumphal entry that Judas had already betrayed Jesus before he even entered into Jerusalem. Well, are the two Gospels incompatible? Not at all. I believe Matthew placed it here for effect, for for importance, and he doesn't place any kind of a timestamp on it saying that it happened here. John does. John said it happened the night before the triumphal entry. The week had gone by. Judas had betrayed Jesus four or five days. He was in process, gang. In process of the betrayal. When he says to Jesus, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. And Jesus said to him, You've said it yourself. The audacity of Judas to say this thing. This is a moment, gang, of high drama. Even as he spoke the words, he knew exactly what he was doing. Was he trying to throw the other apostles and maybe Jesus off, possibly? Was he just so arrogant? So wrapped up in his sin that he couldn't even see what he was doing? I think that's more likely. 1 John chapter 4, verse 2 tells us that when hypocrites and liars, they get to a certain point where they are seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. And Ironside puts it this way. He says how sin does harden the heart and sear the conscience. And one of the greatest dangers of lies and deceit, even the little white lies that we may tell from time to time, and the deceit that we begin to pour out in our lives, it can fry the conscience until it's rendered incapacitated. How can people commit such heinous crimes as sometimes we see on the news? They don't start out that way. It's little steps. It's tiny little bits until the conscience begins to not know right from wrong. Until the conscience is so seared it doesn't even realize what the person is doing. I believe Judas was at that place. By the way, who here at one time or another hasn't justified a lie? Hasn't rationalized a sinful behavior? Well, that's what Judas is doing. Judas is crossed over into the place of a seared conscience. So intent on his sin, he couldn't even see what he was doing. Well, why couldn't the other apostles see it? Why didn't the other apostles hear it? When he, I mean, a couple of things. He who dips with me. Well, the layout being what it is, John and Judas both dipped with him. And the apostles knew John was Jesus' closest friend. Well, it couldn't be. I mean, this is, he must be speaking in parables again. It doesn't make sense. Must be something else that he's pointing to or, or, or trying to explain to us, and they didn't get it. They, they were confused by it. But we also see Judas, who was betraying him, saying, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. You said it yourself, Jesus says. And you'd think at that moment everybody would say, Oh, it's Judas. I saw him dip. <laughs> I heard what he said. They may not have heard what he said. How so? Because in the same way that John reclined against Jesus, Jesus 
reclined against Judas. Jesus would have been leaning into Judas and Judas could have easily whispered, surely it's not I, Rabbi. As all the others were saying the same thing and Jesus looks back and says, you said it yourself. We both know what's going on here. Even in this moment of betrayal, I am amazed at the compassion of Jesus. I am amazed that He doesn't say, guys, Judas is going to do it. Get him! (laughs) That's what I would have done. Take him down, bind him, throw him out! Stop him! You said it yourself, Judas. John 13.30 tells us, So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. And John uses that specifically. Of course it was night, it was in the evening, it was Passover, but John uses the pictures of dark and light often in his Gospel. And he paints a dramatic picture Judas receives the morsel and goes out. It was night. Did Judas leave before Jesus came to the part of the Passover that we now observe in communion? I believe he did. Now that's been argued for 2,000 years. It's been debated. It really doesn't matter what you think on that. We can have different opinions. But I think Judas was out of there before we come to this part of the meal that has held such significance for us here in the church over the past two millennia. Verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after a blessing, He broke it and gave it to His disciples. And He said, Take, eat. This is My body. Peter, did you catch that? What did He say? Huh? This is a new thing. This had never been said before in the Passover meal. You didn't break the bread, hand it out, and claim that it was your body. That wasn't done. This part of the meal, as Rich Robinson pointed out Wednesday night, was likely in conjunction with what's called the afikoman. The afikoman is that point in the Passover where the bread is broken. And some of it placed in this three-tiered pillow. And another hidden for the children to find. It's kind of a, a method to keep the kids awake and involved in the Passover about halfway through. It's likely that's what's going on. Afikoman, by the way, is the only Greek word in an other, otherwise completely Hebrew uh, liturgy. Afikoman meaning the coming one. The coming one. So Jesus breaks bread. The bread He broke signified the One who is and who was and who is to come. Now, without going into all the elements of the Passover Seder, and again, we did that Wednesday, I do want to quickly point out some what I believe are crucial doctrinal points regarding Christ our Passover and what we believe about communion, what the Bible teaches us about the taking of communion that we do every week here at the bridge. First off, someone might ask this question. And it has been asked of me before. How could one man's death pay for all sin of all people of all time? I mean, come on. Even Jesus being perfect, even if I give you that one, how could that one death pay for every man, every woman, all of our sin? Look at verse 27. When He had taken a cup and given thanks, He gave it to them saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is My blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. How is it possible? Number one, the meaning of covenant. When we share in communion, when we take this miniature version of the feast, we need to recognize and understand the meaning of covenant. Jesus, He took that third cup, third cup out of four in the Passover meal, the cup of redemption. He held it high. He blessed it, saying, Baruch Atah Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Bore Peri Hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, 
king of the universe who created the fruit of the vine. It was the cup of redemption. But Jesus prays this prayer holding out the cup and then as He begins to pass it out, He breaks from tradition. He does a completely new thing. He'd just done it with the bread. Now He does it with the wine. He adds, This is My blood of the covenant which is poured out for the many for forgiveness of sins. Now no doubt some rabbi in the past across all the years from the Passover pointed out that the wine might be a picture of blood. Might be a reminder of our redemption by God, of Him redeeming us out of Egypt and bringing us back into the land. But on this night, Jesus says, This is my blood. Not just any blood. This is my blood of the covenant. What covenant? The covenant that God guaranteed would save the world. God's absolute promise. Listen, there is probably not a more serious word to God the Father than the word covenant. And when God says covenant, we need to pay attention. It means I am making a binding and hard fast commitment to follow through. I will do this. And of all the covenants we see in Scripture, and you Bible students know, there are roughly seven or eight of them. And there's only one that was conditional. That was the Mosaic Covenant. When God gave the law and said to Israel proper, you all keep these rules and I will do this. And if you violate these rules, I will do this. That's the only one that's that's conditional. Every other covenant of God, no condition is placed on man. It's only God who says I will follow through. Psalm 89 verse 34, he says, My covenant I will not violate. Nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie. If I say it, I'm going to do it. And Hebrews 12.24 calls Jesus the mediator of the new covenant. This is my, the blood of the covenant. My blood of the covenant. In speaking those words, Jesus locked in an absolute promise. I covenant with you. That if you will put faith in my Son, Jesus Christ, I'll accept His sacrifice for your redemption. That's how the blood of one man can cover the sins of the entire world. Because God made a covenant promise based in this death and on this blood. God's covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and and Jacob were not based on who they were. We're not based on, on what they did. Abraham was a pagan when God found him. When God called him. He was a a polytheist. Multiple gods. When God called him out to monotheism, to the belief in the one true God. Isaac, Jacob, look at their lives. Jacob was a conniver. It was not because he was a good guy that God covenanted with him. It was because of God's nature. And the same is true for us today. Praise God it's true for us today. That He keeps His covenant with you and with me, not because of who we are. And certainly not because of what we do. He keeps His covenant because of who He is and what He's done. And that's what Jesus is talking about right here. This is My blood of the covenant. Deuteronomy 4.31 tells us, The Lord your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you nor destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers which He swore to them. Romans 11.27 Paul writes, This is My covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the Gospel, they, Israel are enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God made promises He will not forget, Paul is saying. And I love this one, one uh, sentence that Jesus spoke in John fourteen twenty seven. On this same night, He said to the apostles, Not as the world gives, 
do I give to you? My promises, my covenants are binding. How does the blood of Jesus redeem me from my sin along with all the other people who have claimed Jesus across the centuries? By covenant. God's righteous, perfect, irrevocable guarantee through Jesus. By the way, as Jesus drew the message of this new covenant out of the midst of the old Passover, please understand this. I hope you already get this. Jesus did not fall victim to the cross. This wasn't something that got out of God's hands and after the fact somehow He figured out a way to to make it work. He did not fall victim to the cross. The new covenant was in the plan before the old covenant was given. How can you say that? Because of Revelation 13.8, Jesus is called the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That this plan was in place before day one of creation. God said, I'm going to give an old covenant and a new covenant. I am going to provide a way for my created humanity to be saved if they'll put faith in me. He knew what He was doing before any of this began. Nothing is an afterthought with God. The meaning of covenant. Second thing to note about communion. Stay with me on this because this may ruffle a few feathers. I hope not, but it may. Number two, the myth. The myth of transubstantiation. The myth of transubstantiation. Depending on your religious upbringing, especially if you have a Catholic background, this this may make you uncomfortable, but hear me on this and look at what the Scriptures have to say. Contrary to Catholic theology, the matzah and the wine do not mystically transform into flesh and blood when they go down into your throat and into your stomach. Now that is taught in Catholic theology. That it, is, it becomes the actual flesh, the actual blood of Jesus. And because of that, in Catholicism, when, you, when the, the, the sacrament is shared, it is a very, very serious thing. Very careful. The priest will, will give the wafer to people just to make sure that it goes you know, from priest directly into the mouth. It's not dropped on the floor because you don't want to drop Jesus on the floor. The wine in most Catholic churches is drunk only by the priest. <laughs> Which is interesting, alcoholism is a big problem among priests in Catholicism. But it's only drunk by the priest because you don't want to spill the blood of Jesus. We can't risk that. But this is taught as absolute doctrine in the Catholic Church. Everything game revolves around the Mass. The Mass is the center point. It's the point of the wafer and the wine being worshipped as the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ. What's interesting is this doctrine of transubstantiation wasn't even declared to be Catholic doctrine until 1215 A.D. And 1200 years after the fact, so you kind of wonder, well, did Jesus intend that in the first place? Okay, even on the night before His death, Jesus was clear about this memorial. Now, He said, this is My blood. But He said that while His actual physical blood was still pumping in His veins. He was using it at the time. He said, this is my body, but flesh didn't start disappearing from his arms or his back or his face as the apostles ate this bread. Well, Rick, you're getting a little ridiculous. I don't mean to be crude, but there's a much larger issue at stake in understanding this. What were the last three words that Jesus spoke on the cross? Do you remember? It is finished. John 19.30, it is finished. Romans 6.10 tells us the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life that He lives, He lives to God. But in Catholic Mass, the communion 
as it's shared, is the re-sacrifice of Jesus every single time it's taken. Continual sacrifice. Ongoing sacrifice. Which is not consistent with Scripture. When Jesus called out, it's finished. Here's the issue. Communion commemorates what He did. The sacrifice was perfect. It was complete. It was once for all. So please understand that when you take communion. Why then did Jesus institute communion? Because we're forgetful. Because we need those points. And God's given us a couple of them. One is baptism. Baptism, that reminder of the full cleansing that God gives us when people come to faith in Jesus Christ. The next step, that, that show of obedience, is to be baptized, to be immersed. And when you are, it is that picture of what Jesus has done in your heart washes you clean. We do it right out in the pond. If you haven't been baptized, you need to be. Not as a point of religion, but as a point of faith in Jesus and a proclamation that I am washed by the blood of the Lamb. Well, that's one thing God gives us. It's a reminder. Communion is another great reminder. Number three, the memory and the message. The memory and the message. He instituted communion. He took Passover and made it a new thing and said, as often as you do this... Well, let me read this to you. 1 Corinthians 11... Verse 23, Paul says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night in which He was betrayed took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and He said, This is My body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same way, He took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood, which we just read. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. Now there are some who would say, Well, I don't believe in taking communion once a week. We take it quarterly at my church. Or we do it once a month. Or we do it once a year. Jesus said, as often as you do it, remember me. As far as I'm concerned, once a week probably isn't quite enough because I forget in between Sundays, don't you? Don't you find yourself in those moments where you've completely forgotten about the sacrifice of Jesus because you're too wrapped up in the sacrifice of your own life? Your hard work and effort? I love what we hear going on in the lives of people like Jackie or Lisa Adelot. I'm going to share this with you because she's not here and we can talk about it behind her back. John and Lisa are still waiting to find out about a passport about for this little girl Monica that they're adopting from Ghana. Still waiting to hear. You know what Lisa's prayer is? It's not, God, hurry up the process. It's not, Lord, find the passport. It's, Lord, help me to live in such a way that those watching will not be turned off from adoption. Let my life be the kind of example. However I handle this, may I handle it in such a way that it won't discourage others. She shared that with me in confidence. I just blew that. She shared that with me and it it amazed me. And when I see people like Lisa or like Jackie praying prayers that say, God, be glorified. Be glorified in me. We need more prayers like that. As often as you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. As often as you do this. And then Paul said, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Another great reason to do it often is a continual proclamation Well, why do we need to proclaim His death? Listen, because every time we proclaim the death of Jesus, we go straight to the greatest proof of God's unconditional, uncompromising, unfailing love. 
That's why we proclaim the death. We don't do it out of religion. Yes, Jesus was sacrificed on the cross, and so we take communion each week together and make sure that we get our grace points, you know. I take communion and I'm washed for that week. No, that's not why we do it. It's to remember Jesus. It's to stir the heart of the believer, but it's to proclaim the love of God, which is greatest in the death of Jesus. Who would die for you? Who loves you that much? Well, Jesus does. And each time we share communion, we're saying, look at the love of Christ. Look at the love of God. So number three was the memory and the message. Song of of Songs, chapter 8, verse 7. Though it's a love song written by Solomon, there's prophetic in here. Listen to this verse. Many waters cannot quench love, nor will rivers overflow it. If a man were to give all the riches of his house for love, it would be utterly despised. That's the kind of love God has. That overflowing giving up of everything to show us how He feels about us. And number four, the last one, we see in this the millennial promise. The millennial promise. In this full revelation of the true depth of the Passover, Jesus promises an unparalleled celebration when He comes again. Verse 29, He says, I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. We're going to have a celebration. The wine is going to be poured out. And with Jesus, the cup will be raised. It'll be amazing. We're going to watch as Jesus Himself, who is the cup of redemption, raises the glass. And together we drink wine anew with Him in the kingdom, all things consummated. Praise the Lord. We will worship. And it's going to be amazing. When I drink it anew with you. You know what? For Jesus, I think for all of us, it's the ultimate picture of delayed gratification. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, For the joy set before Him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. For the joy set before Him. What joy is that? I believe it's the day when He drinks the wine anew with us. I believe it's the day when all things are fulfilled and His children are gathered to Him. For the joy set before Him, Jesus went through the sacrifice. He's willing to wait for it. He's been willing for 2,000 years to wait for you and to wait for me. Isaiah 53 verse 11 says, As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. By the way, notice this. Which comes first in the Passover meal, in in the, the new Passover under Jesus? Which came first, the bread or the wine? The bread does. Broke this bread. Take this in my body. Now, now, drink this. This is my blood of the new covenant. I would have think I would have thought it'd be the other way around. I mean, first, shouldn't we be cleansed by the blood? Cleanse me with the blood first, Lord. Make me clean, and then I'll, I'll take of your body. Then, then I'll take in the living word. A lot of people think this way. A lot of us sometimes think this way. It's perspiration before impartation. Hard work and sweat, getting it together before we receive of the Spirit of God. It's not how God works. He comes to us as we are. He begins the process of change. Yes, He cleanses us by the blood of Christ. But work 
and cleaning up and dressing up and coming to Jesus. Jesus says the opposite. Come to me as you are and I'm going to come in and I will clean house and I will bring impartation for your redemption. What Paul calls in Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Verse 30 ends the story, at least for now. We'll pause and come back to it next Sunday. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Ever wonder what they sang? Was it Onward Christian Soldiers or Amazing Grace? Tradition says that it was Psalm 135, which is often called the Little Hallel. Hallel meaning praise God, praise Jehovah. The Little Hallel. Or it may possibly also have been Psalm 115 through 118, which is called the Hallel Psalms, the Psalms of Praise. Either way, what's interesting to me about the Passover Seder is it still ends with songs. That's still the way they conclude the evening, and it may be two to three to four or five hours long, depending on how orthodox a a Jewish family you are. But at the end, it will end with a song. Sometimes it's the Hava Nagilah. You know, come, let us be glad, or the Hatikva, which means our hope. It's the Israel's national anthem. But there's one song that is often sung in Jewish homes I'd like to recite for you. It's a thousand years old. And it's called Dayanu. Not Dayanu, although that's, that's interesting. It's called the Dayanu. D-A-Y-E-N-U if you're just writing it out in, in English. It's 15 stanzas long. The first five stanzas are on leaving slavery. Second five stanzas are on the miracles of God. The last five stanzas are on being with God. And throughout the thing, they will sing in between, Dayanu, 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 Dayanu. And then they come back and they sing a new stanza. It begins like this. How many wonderful deeds did God perform for us? Had He brought us out of Egypt and not split the sea for us? Dayanu. Had He split the sea for us and not brought us through dry shod? Dianu. Well, what does Dianu mean? It means enough for us. It would have been enough for us. It's sufficient for us. Had He brought us to Mount Sinai and not given us Torah, it would have been enough for us. Had He given us the Torah and not brought us into the land of Israel, it would have been enough for us. Great song. But here's the thing it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to receive deliverance from Egypt and the parting of the Red Sea and the Torah and Mount Sinai or even the land of Israel. It was not enough for the Jewish people and it wouldn't have been enough for you or for me. We still would have rebelled. We still would have fallen. Enough for us? That's why the new covenant in His blood is so absolutely necessary. We have come, Hebrews 12.24 tells us, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel spoke vengeance. His blood cried out from the ground when Cain, in that first murder in Scripture, Cain murdered him and his blood cried out, Vengeance! And God came looking for Cain, didn't He? But the blood of Jesus does not cry out, Vengeance, the blood of Jesus cries out, Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Messianic Jews today now add this final stanza to the song. Elu shalak. Shalak lanu. Shalak lanu amashiach. Shalak lanu amashiach. Dayanu. If God had only sent the Messiah to us and done nothing else, that would have been enough. That would have been enough. 
Christ, our Passover, is more than enough for us. Amen? Let's bow together. Jesus, we accept, we receive, and believe in the blood of the covenant. The new covenant that You began by Your death on the cross. We accept it and we receive, Lord, and we believe in the blood that was poured out on Calvary and the flesh that was broken for us. And in the power of Your sacrifice to save not just one person, not a handful of people, but anyone who would call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Anyone who would enter in then into relationship with You, Lord Jesus, we believe and we receive the new covenant. And we thank You for revealing to us the final and fullest meaning of Passover. Jesus, thank You for passing over our sins and considering us to be righteous before God because of Your work and because of who You are. Oh Father, we praise You in Jesus' name. Amen.